Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about Andor Episode 5, The Axe Forgets. This episode aired on today, the, the day that we're recording, October 5th, 2022. <laughs> uh, it was written by Dan Gilroy and directed by Susanna White, who also wrote, Dan wrote, and then Susanna directed last week's episode too, and I would imagine probably next week's episode as well. I think so. I think that's confirmed. Yeah. This was another incredible episode. Andor continues to knock it out of the park. This is also Charlotte and I's first new episode in two months. (laughs) So that was really exciting. And I woke up this morning and I, I, it it, it like didn't fully hit me that I had a new episode of Andor to watch this morning. I was like, Me, me neither. But it was also, it was that feeling but also Christmas morning yeah once realizing that it It was was like yes exciting (laughs) and my um I usually talk to my sister in the morning when she's driving to work and so she called me and I was like you only have like 10 minutes to talk to me this morning as I'm like getting my coffee made because I have Star Wars to watch (laughs) and she was like a movie she's like you're watching a movie this morning I'm like no it's a tv show oh my gosh (laughs) get with it (laughs) and she was like okay that's cool (laughs) but yeah this episode was so great uh on the edge of my seat I cannot wait until next week to see what I imagine is the conclusion of the second arc of season one it was just man, this was such a good episode. And you were texting me. um, I watched this before you. And so you were kind of texting me while you were watching it. And uh, we were just talking about the characters. And I was like, there's not a single character in this show that I don't enjoy watching. Like, there's never a point when I'm watching this show where, you know, if we're with Luthen, I'm like, all right, I'm ready. You know, I want to go back to Cassian or, or when we're with um, like Cyril, I'm like, no, I want to go back to Luthen. You know, I'm excited to spend time with every single character. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, I think that the show is just so unbelievably brilliant. I think it's gorgeous. I think it is so well directed, so well written and so thrilled with this episode. I've seen some rumblings online about people talking about how this is sort of uh, like a mediary episode between the arc, right? And it is. Mm -hmm. But Caitlin and I sort of were talking before we started recording about how this episode is all about the mounting tensions between everyone. And on the surface, that's what it's about. And also underneath the surface, that's what it's about. But even more than that, this episode has a lot to say about these characters. And in a lot of ways, it is a character study, Uh, just like this entire series, to be honest. And I am excited to talk about it. I loved it. Um, it's also, we should mention that Dan Gilroy is Tony Gilroy's brother, and they often sort of partner together on projects, and I think Dan did a great job. There were some absolute killer lines in this episode. Yeah. And it's sort of one of those moments where you, like, when those lines happen, you kind of sit back and you're like, damn, that was a line. That really that really said something. And yeah, and that's that's how it was this episode. And I always love that. Can you even pick the the standout quote? Like I, I think the well, easy one I would think, be the axe. Quote. Yeah, the axe forgets. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think there were just so many good lines, like even Nemec's whole discussion about 
rebellion and belief and his manifesto and and all of that, like with the navigational tool and stuff that he was using, the way that he talked about oppression and things like that. Those were runaway lines. Cassian's discussion with them was great. I don't know. I think there was a lot here. And, and even um, some of Cyril's mom, I think her name was Edie. I think I saw that in the um, yep. subtitles. Uh, even some of her lines I thought were pretty spot on for the show overall. I think mm-hmm. one of her first lines to Cyril was about leadership. She was like, it's not just something you can turn on and off. And of course, she's being uh, not nice to Cyril in that moment about him slouching and things like that. But I think I think that line is pretty pointed when we're talking about a lot of leaders of the rebellion here. Cassian will eventually be a leader in his own right. Mon Mothma, of course, seeing Mon Mothma's role in her family. It's not something she can turn on and off, even though maybe she wants to. Her family wants her to. You know, so I, I think there's so many lines in this episode, especially more so, I think, than any other episode we've had thus far in Andor that just seems so like heavy handed in the way of listen to this. This is all leading to something bigger. Definitely. I think last episode we sort of separated the discussion between the characters and different parts of the action. And I think we should just do the same thing this week. So why don't we start with Cassian and the whole heist situation on Aldani? And the question that I really wanted to zero in on as we sort of break out and talk about how this episode had a lot of different great character moments, what was the main conflict with Cassian in this arc, in this specific episode? What I think is interesting about this episode is that I don't think Cassian himself had a lot of, I guess I would say, like internal conflict. Cassian knows why he's there. He's already decided to follow through on this heist. It's everyone around him, right, that's doubting him, questioning him, especially uh, Skeen. I think that's kind of like the main antagonist where our actual external conflict, I would say, is coming from. If I were to speculate, I would imagine that whatever happens um, over this episode and the next episode are what kind of propel, motivate Cassian to perhaps fully devote himself to the rebellion, right? We're kind of, this is the first step, I think. He might not immediately fall into it, but this is step one, I would imagine, right? And I think that's kind of a safe bet. So I think he has to feel connected to these people in some way that is going to give him some kind of motivation, even like his own rebellion, revenge in the future if things go awry next week. You know what I mean? And so I think it was important for Cassian to kind of hear everyone's stories, but it's also them opening up to Cassian because they have to trust him as part of their team now. Uh, And then eventually we see Cassian kind of spill the beans uh, late at the end of the episode about why he's really there. But what's also important is that Cassian at this point has not shared his own story and his own experience with the rebellion, everything that happened on Canary. That's still something that he has not shared with the group. Uh, I am. I kind of think he might share it next week with them at some kind of moment of pause as like a final olive branch or a final, you can trust me. Um, something like, you know, Skeen shared about his brother, Nemix, the true believer, all of those kinds of things. Um, Gorn with the woman he fell in love with, but Cassian still hasn't shared his truth. He hasn't shared his truth yet or his full experiences with the rebellion. But I think I think next week it will become very real to him. And I think there will be an opportunity for him to share what happened on Canary and to his own family in the same ways that others have shared with him this week. 
I think it's interesting that you said that Cassian knows why he's there and the rest of the people don't know. And that was sort of, and I think that's true, that Cassian does know why he's there. He's there because he's getting paid because Luthen asked him and now he's in it and he has nowhere else to go. But I think what the characters that he's surrounded with on Aldani are doing is holding up a mirror to him that he's there for more than just the money. It's what Luthen was trying to get across too, that wouldn't you want to risk it all for something real? Uh, for everyone around him, this rebellion is real for them. And now I'm just saying that and I'm realizing that that is a quote that Cassian actually says in Rogue One. Yeah. Suddenly the rebellion is real for you. I think that he's having that suddenly the rebellion is real for you moment. And it's interesting that I, that like I'm, I think that he's experiencing these, those emotions, at least that's what I think in this episode, because I think that he has experienced a lot of strife throughout his life, not just the Canari situation, but we learned something that he was in some youth center on SIPO. I have to assume that's sort of like a juvenile detention center, the comparison to, there's a lot of terms that were thrown around in this episode that weren't necessarily defined, but I'm making some assumptions here. When Keen says he was in, he was at Cratehead, and then the 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 tattoo, he says by the hand. Cassian knows what that is. He has an experience with that. However, Skeen like wasn't familiar with Sipo Youth Center, and they have what felt like in that moment a shared experience, even though they were on different places. I don't know what that shared experience is, but it does seem like Cassian. Obviously, we know this. Cassian has lived a lot of life, right? Like we know that his father was um, hung in the town square, that Marva has dealt with a lot of strife too. So he has a lot of reasons to be within the rebellion. And he also says in this episode, I know what I believe. And we know that he hates the empire. We do know that. Yeah. But I think that there's a sense of like, okay, but what is it? What are you in it for? Like, why is it personal to you? What makes it personal? Yeah. I wonder if we're going to see something that makes it even more personal in the next episode. I'm not sure. Like, what is going to be the moment that he would, like you mentioned, like perhaps he would reveal his own story? What would he include in that story? There's a lot of things to include, but what would be the number one thing that he would say? I wonder. Yeah, it feels like the two kind of big things would be the loss of Canari and you know, if if it's true that whatever the mining disaster was there killed his family, right? We talked about like there are no adults there. If Cassian has memories of that and um, any occupation that was on Canari, anything like that, uh, obviously the loss of his sister, but we could say that's not directly tied to the Empire, right? That's Marva who took him from Canari. And then, you know, we don't know what happens after that. But then the loss of his father, if that was from the Empire, and then everything that he's experienced uh, with the Youth Center. For me, I kind of thought of the Youth Center as like like the Hitler Youth Centers, honestly. Um, well, maybe. Yeah, uh, that, that would work too, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And the reason I thought of that when I heard it um, is because later Nemec, is that his name? Nemec? Nemec. Uh, Nemec. He says, he he's talking about the things that the Empire pushed the galaxy to forget and the ways that they've kind of rewritten history and things like that, which you guys know, we talk a lot on here about how do people know what they know in the Star Wars galaxy. So I really liked this line from Nemec about the Empire actively pushing an agenda and propaganda. And I don't know, the youth center, I, I kind of constructed this timeline for Cassian that he went to this youth center, was perhaps put there by the Empire, right? So I'm sure it's 
basically a juvenile detention center too. It's just another word for it, right? And then kind of went to Mimban later. Uh, and then yeah, everything that happened there. That, that's kind of like, the, I guess, the, the pseudo timeline I built for him right now. But anyway, I think that these kind of small things that they've talked about with the Empire, I think, are important and worth noting too. And yeah, I don't know. I, I do think that next week we'll see... Cassian will will reveal more to the group. Uh, I really do think that'll happen, and I think it will be why they why he'll kind of risk it all. I think at the end of this of this kind of sequence of getting the the payroll information, which I gotta say, I was thinking about this the second time I watched this episode. I really love that the thing that they're after is not something like a holocron. You know what I mean? Or it's not some artifact or something like that it's payroll which (laughs) seems so not exciting you know what I mean but the information there is what a rebellion would actually use to have a leg up on the empire you know I'm just glad it's not something kind of larger than life like a holocron uh, or a a force artifact like that, or, or even just like a historic cultural artifact. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Nemec and some of the things that we learned about the different members of this heist group. I really thought that it was so great to have this character who is younger. seems like he's the youngest of the group who is, he's so intent on escaping oppression about writing a manifesto. I like how Skeen was sort of ribbing him a little bit about what he was doing, how he was like so gung-ho. But I really, I, I don't know. I liked this about this character. I thought it was pretty, um, it made a lot of sense for the youngest member to be the most, uh, devoted, I guess, and the most active um, or the most keen to be active. And I think most everyone in the group agrees with him, but I think it was interesting how we get a glimpse of Skeen, who I'm sure agrees with him fully, but kind of sees him as like the quirky radical. I kind of liked that dynamic that was being explored there. And I really liked his comparison between like we're becoming like slaves to the imperial technology. He didn't say that, but he said something similar to that about how he sort of said like the pen is mightier than the sword in a lot of ways uh, about his writing and his manifesto. And I liked that he also had a, he had some reflections about it's not done yet. Like there's a lot to learn and that's true. And I think that his quote, it just, I think we should read it. You want to read it? It's great. Sure. Sure. So Nemec is telling uh, Cassian, right, I think I think everyone will remember this quote, but it is uh, so much going wrong, so much to say, and all of it happening so quickly. The pace of repression outstrips our ability to understand it. And that is the real trick of the imperial thought machine. It's easier to hide behind 40 atrocities than a single incident. But they have a fight on their hands, don't they? Our elemental rights are such a simple thing to hold, but they will have to shake the galaxy hard to loosen our grip. And... Yeah, uh, Skeen calls Nemec, Nemec the the true believer, which I think is the best way to describe him. He, I think he understands the gravity of what they're doing, right? But he still kind of has, I would say, like rose-colored glasses almost in a way about uh, the rebellion and what they're doing. He, I think, it, like right when we find out that, um, or when he finds out that Cassian is here for the money, he's he's so sad, <laughs> you know, it, it really hurts him to think that that would be a reason why Cassian is here. And Cassian even tells him, why would I risk it? 
for this, you know, this is such a, a, a crazy mission that you guys are on. Uh, of course, I would only do something this insane for the money. Whereas for Nemec, it's the only option, right? And I wonder if he has had an experience like Skeen or like Gorn about losing someone to the Empire, you know, because Val says later, you know, everyone has their own rebellion. And it's not like someone like Skeen, it, it's there's that revenge aspect to it. And I think that could even be a part of Cassian's story too. And with Gorn, there's that revenge component to it as well. But I didn't really sense that from Nemec in this episode. Yeah. I also, I, I think that he, that Nemec is in it because he believes, but maybe hasn't had something specific as tragic that others have had happen to him, but it yeah. still makes his, his, personal his own rebellion like it says everyone has their own rebellion his own rebellion just as justified as others it yeah and that's I think what makes it interesting yeah but is it as realistic um probably not but again I just don't think that makes it any less justified no I agree I I just wonder what happens when they lose big time because I think if they lose if they lose right will he will I don't know. You know what I mean? Like he, the, the rose colored glasses have to come off at some point, everything right. they, they have, they have nothing to lose right now and everything to gain. But mm -hmm. I feel like he, he could become disappointed, jaded, disbelief that they had a setback, lost someone, you know, mm -hmm. realizes just how high the stakes are. Does he realize how high the stakes are right now? Yeah. I would say maybe, maybe he thinks he does. I don't know. He's an interesting character to think about, like what could happen in the future with him. And you right. want him to keep this, this genuine, Fire. yeah, here for all the right reasons, right. Um, belief that hope, really. He's got that pure hope and you want him to keep that because the rebellion will need that. Mm -hmm. I was about to say, actually, that I think that Cassian recognizes at the end of this episode that everyone is scared and everyone is afraid. Mm -hmm. And that there are people who might want to run and not complete this task. The f I don't know if um, if Nemec has that same fear that, say, Skeen does, because I feel like Skeen wants to run. And he's kind of looking – like I, Cassian calls him out and is like, you're looking for a reason to run. That reason is not me. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get out, you you have to get out. But that it's not about me. Yeah. You know? And I, I liked that. I liked that there was – Cassian because it seemed like Skeen was calling Cassian out and then here Cassian is calling everyone else out in fact Cassian throughout the entire episode f has been calling everyone out on the left-handed situation on the plan also him not knowing what the deal is with Cinta and Vel and where they're going they're Cinta and Vel are definitely an item but I think it's really fascinating that they're withholding their plan for the heist from the rest of the group or just from Cassian and the audience. I don't know what they're doing and it, it kind of, it really puts me on edge <laughs> because yeah. I'm not sure if I trust both of them. I think I do, but I mean, I think that's the point of it all, right? Is that because we have no visibility into that, we have no visibility into it. We don't know <laughs> what's going to happen there. I just thought that was a really interesting choice. And I kind of throughout this episode ended up liking Val more than I did in this last that last episode because 
obviously I'm on Cassian's side as our protagonist and someone that like our familiar face in the entire story that I wanted everyone to accept Cassian right away, right? And Vel was very um, hard-lined in that last episode. So I felt like this episode I liked her more because it felt like she actually had Cassian's back a little bit more. But at the end of the day, she didn't divulge what was happening next. I have to assume, this is what I think, I'm curious to see what you think. I have to assume that she has a plan to get them out, like planning their escape. Reminds me of what Luthen says. Um, somehow like making a contact with the rebellion, a different sort of contact. I'm not sure. What did you think about all that? I, it's interesting because I kind of thought the opposite that. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. 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 Because also because of Luthen's conversation with her when they dropped off Cassian, excuse me, Clem, that he was like, he's a redundant, he's a redundancy. He's collateral. You know, if, and the good thing about paying him is that if you don't need him, you can kill him. And so I kind of wonder if he's the, like, if there's part of the plan that hasn't been told to Cassian where he will be left behind or something like that. Like, he's the bait, the distraction, something like that. You know what I mean? And Val and Cinta are, they're, they are coming for the pickup, but it's not, it doesn't include Cassian. Uh, I think that will change like, I think the rest of the team will be pro let's take Cassian with us now. Like we can't, we can't leave him behind, you know? Uh, because I think again, we'll Cassian will share some more of his story, save someone else, something like that will happen. Actions will prove louder than words. Exactly. I think. Thank you. So I don't know. That's kind <laughs> of what I thought with Valen, Valen Sinta is that maybe there was a plan for the pickup, but it was never including Cassian uh Mm. so I don't know and also I gotta say I was suspicious of Gorn initially when we Mm -hmm. started to see his role inside uh the gantry and inside the imperial garrison I was a little suspicious of him and then I became suspicious like when they first went out to that that temple um where the I I guess is it a temple where they where the target practice was? I suppose, yeah. I think it, it reminded me a lot of the like seeing stones. Um, yes, altar. in the Mandalorian. It almost yeah, the, altar. It was, definitely. Uh, anyway, I almost thought that they were the three of them were out there by themselves, and the other two had like found out that Gorn was involved with the rebellion or something. And that's why they had brought him out here. And even them saying like target practice. I don't know. I was, I was really on the edge of my seat. A lot of tension for me personally in this episode. I was like, I don't know if I trust Val. I don't know if I trust Gorn. Wait, I think the other guys could be on to Gorn. Oh no. Oh my God. Gorn. (laughs) Anyway, I, um, I trust Gorn now, especially after hearing his story from Val, which is the point. And it's crazy how, that is also for Cassian and of course also for the audience. And I think seeing the last kind of scene of him inside the garrison where the other Imperial officers are like, yeah, we'll only, we should really only have a skeleton crew down here for, you know, the morale of all of the men. And of course that's playing right into their hands because less people down there, more, uh, a higher chance of success. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was so interesting because those Imperials were, you know, he, he paints a picture of 
them not being happy to be placed on Aldani, that it's an unfavorable assignment. And he says, like, the one thing that everyone says is to see the eye. And I think that it was pretty apt that these Imperials would be taking over nature with their huge dam. They're damming up the sacred river. They are imposing their target practice on these sacred sites, but they still want to enjoy the beauties of nature despite like tramping over it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it was like perfectly apt that that would be the conversation. And the little smirk from Gorn after that was great because then it really solidified that yeah, like I'm with you that, oh, I trust him. him. Yeah, Yeah, I trust him. And yes, of course, after hearing his story and everything. And I also, I think it's worth noting that the conversation that those Imperials had later with Gorn about um, the Aldanis, the Donnies, I think is what they refer to the indigenous people there, um, that we learned that there's less than a hundred Donnies remaining. And then there's a bunch of conversation about like imagine a thousand of them like imagine the smell I mean it's just like horrible racist crap and I think that it really illustrated also the tragedy of what Gorn has to deal with every day it feels like he's surrounded by these people who just don't respect anyone especially those people that they took over the sacred valley for and he fell in love with a Dalny, who died, who was now one of the thousands that was killed um, and driven away. So, um, yeah, I definitely trust him a lot more now, a, yeah. a lot more. <laughs> well, even thinking about the uh, the fact that they built the the dam, the garrison there, and then they talk about, oh yeah, we're just going to tear it down and make it an airfield. Now it's it's like nothing matters there. And of course that's, that's the empire. Right. But I think we've talked a lot and a lot of people online, of course, talk about how Andor is, you know, commenting on a lot of real world things. Right. And I think that like that whole conversation, of course, like with colonization and the, the racism of it all, that is very extremely clear in this episode uh, between Gorn and uh, the other guy there, their discussion on top of the dam about the Donnies and smelling them. It was just like, it's so visceral and awful, you know, and the fact that there are only a hun- less than a hundred left is uh, really putting numbers to it because Gorn had mentioned that in the episode prior, I think, about when he's telling Cassian about what the Eye of Aldani is and the festival, the um, festival's not the right word, but the event, basically. And he says uh, there are a few or fewer Aldanis than there were in the past, but he doesn't really put a number to that. So then to to see them talking about thousands of Donnies and now less than a hundred. It's just, it, it's really visceral to what the empire has done here. Mm-hmm. I think that also this episode it, in conjunction with last episode has really painted a really good understanding of the planet of Eldani. And I, I really liked seeing, I think you wrote this in your notes and I totally agree. I loved seeing their whole encampment and them planning and them, um, working on staging things and the, um, the the yak I guess with the horns I don't know I, there's so many horns it was so great I I feel like you get a real sense I don't know so many horns you get a real so many I mean it was just, oh there's that's a lot it was, it was <laughs> like, I loved him he was so cute well I, it's 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 same it's just one of those things that makes Star Wars so cool is that you see an 
animal that looks like something in our real world, but something is a little off. Something yeah. is a little different. <laughs> and that that was a great example. Yeah. And I felt like um you just get in actually in Andor entirely, but especially on Aldani, I get a real sense of place for it. You get a real sense that there's like nobody else in this area mm-hmm. that they're that they're in. That these valleys are empty because people have gotten pushed out. And then you get a real sense of, man, the empire has really taken over this one spot. Like the fear that you feel and the sound design of actually the sound design in all of these episodes is so unreal. I've talked about this before, but that TIE fighter just going through the valley and spooking all of them. I think if there's so much tension in this episode, the mounting tensions of the heist that's going to happen next episode, um, and Cassian even calling it out that it's just always the hardest. I mean, when the TIE fighter goes through, you're like, oh my God, what is going to happen here? And comes back and, too. And yes, exactly. And the thing that is interesting about it is that that TIE fighter did – it didn't do much beyond – like take advantage of that land and disrupt the beauty of that land at that point, right? Like just was a really loud scream. Like the way that TIE fighters are described in Star Wars books is a scream right through space. And Mm -hmm. that sound is just so intense. So when it barrels down that, that valley, it really just took a, it was a clear picture, a clear snapshot of how much the empire is taking over this like beautiful sacred land and scaring people. Yeah. <laughs> it's even people who are prepared, right? Yeah. I just think it was a really good image to include in this episode that really rattled everyone. Mm-hmm. Another great line that I think you could put as one of the lines from the episode uh, also from Nemec happened at this moment too, where he is kind of comforting Cassian, I would say, or just reassuring Cassian of, surprise from above is never as shocking as one from below and that feels very much like the rebel the rebellion right (laughs) so i i loved that line yeah me too i think that is like such a good star wars line yeah and it, it really brings this other theme that they've uh been having in other episodes with cassian about uh, right in the trailer, Luthen and Cassian, and, and in episode three, Luthen and Cassian's whole conversation inside uh, the industrial building warehouse with the, um, I can't remember, the locks, uh, you know, about killing the bastards for real. How'd you get the Starfleet Pathfinder thing? I still don't know what that's called. It's definitely <laughs> called Starfleet. The box. Right? Starfleet? <laughs> It's giving uh, Star Trek. I don't know. Um, Starfinder. It's some the box. Uh, it's, it's just a box. It's like it's, the Imperial it's Holocron. A, <laughs> it's the, it's it's a it is a MacGuffin. So just call it what it is. Uh, anyway, when they're talking about the box, and and Luthen is asking Cassian how he got it, and Cassian goes on that whole wonderful monologue about they never believe that someone like me would come in and spit in their food and take their things. They're so fat and happy and their security, you know, that conversation. And then we even see it brought up uh, in this episode too, when they're talking about the weight measure on the the, the transport that they have to steal. And uh, Val and Tamaran are asking why wasn't this included in the manual? And Cassian is, you know, saying, obviously it's an afterthought. It's an add-on. It's for the low man on the totem pole who has to deal with it. Um, it's not worth 
noting. And, you know, that, of course, is the metaphor for the people who do those kinds of jobs. And then this line, too, of um, surprise from above is never as shocking as one from below. I think it's it's all tying together and it's it's just so masterfully done. And uh, when we're able to watch episodes four through six all together, I think there are going to be so many other things like that that pop out at us. It's going to be really great. And I keep thinking about Can't wait. I keep thinking about how episode three was just absolutely incredible. And it's making me so excited and nervous for next week. <laughs> uh, We've been so excited about next week's episode oh, so much. Gosh. And I'm like, I can't wait. I, I'm going to pop popcorn, I think. Like, I'm ready. In the morning. I'm so excited. I, I, yeah. might, I might do a mimosa. Oh, I think, love that. Maybe I'll do that Yeah, instead. maybe we should do like a mimosa, <laughs> like fun breakfast pastry rather than popcorn. Uh, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds much better. Uh, another thing, another thing that I was really sad about in this episode was that they burned Nemec's model. They had to, right? They burned the whole encampment. But I was really they had sad to to see it burn. And <laughs> I love. Did you think that was a moment of foreshadowing? Ooh, I don't know, but I hope not. <laughs> I don't think fire well, is in the plan. <laughs> I think fire is in the plan because it? it's like a firework situation. So maybe it could burn. Power. Yeah. I anyway, I was sad about it, but I liked at the end when Cassian was talking to Nemec and said it looks just like your model as this compliment to Nemec's good work. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. I will also say though, um, I think this was the first time when they're burning the encampment and they're having the drink around the fire that we hear like mention of the rebellion and actually referring to the rebellion. We've heard mm -hmm. Cassian and others, you know, I think it was Cassian in an earlier episode that was like, I don't want to be a part of the rebellion or Sagara or any of that. But I think this is the first time we've heard someone involved in it, reference it that directly and, and confirming that that's the group they're working with. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think this is a good transition to talk about the Coruscant parties because Yes, that was the first time that we heard them refer to the rebellion as the rebellion as an organization, uh, not just like a personal rebellion, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's good a good time to skip on over to talk about Luthen and how anxious he was. Um, I have a wild theory that I just have to get out there, okay? And I don't mean to be like this kind of person. Because I don't love being this kind of person with a, as a Star Wars fan, but I just want to say it. Okay. Is it possible that Vel is Luthen's daughter or some relative? Because he is so anxious in that snapshot. And I think it's fine for him. Like, it makes sense for him to be anxious. He has a, he's like personally invested in the success of that, clearly, because he was pushing Mon Mothma in the last episode for funds. Like it's very clear he is heavily involved in some form of the rebellion, right? So yeah. of course he wants the success of this. And we know for a fact that he thinks that this operation was perhaps sloppy and maybe going to not succeed. So I, I do understand that he is nervous. Like I understand that completely. And so does Clea, which also let's talk about how we have a confirmed spelling of the name. Mm -hmm. And it is K-L- E-Y-A. Like Claire, Clara, but it's different. It's Clea. <laughs> okay. It's different. <laughs> and she is so cool. I cannot wait for her 
She's going to have a moment. I feel it. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Totally. She's like reassuring Luthen this entire time about, well, you can't do anything about it now, basically, is that's kind of what she's saying. I wouldn't say you wanted this to happen. It's more like tough love. Yeah, it is tough. Yeah. Totally. Tough love. Some people say reassuring. Some people say <laughs> tough love. I think that in a lot of like the Venn diagram is kind of the same. Okay. <laughs> um, and he says, you know, she says, like, you wanted this to happen. This is what it took. And Luthen says, I wanted it too much. It's kind and, of like uh, Luthen's conversation with Bell when he dropped off Cassian. You wanted to leave. Exactly. This is what it takes. And now Clay is giving him kind of the same uh, quote unquote pep talk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then that's why I'm like, okay, so what is the deal and why does he have such a personal investment in this? And I'm like, okay, is the personal investment because Vel wanted to lead a heist and this is what it took and she was kind of mad at her father potentially or father figure for dumping this new person on her team and like was there an added element of not trusting like the superior not trusting the inferior right yeah and i i think that that would make a lot of sense even without the the familial connection i think it would be interesting and added and also parallel to perhaps what's going on with Mon Mothma and learning that she has a daughter in this episode. Uh, wow. It's shocking information <laughs> that there's like a, a tense family situation. But if so much of the show's themes actually relate to complicated relationships with parental figures, which feels like it, right? Like actually we have a lot of examples of this right now. Yeah. Uh, not just with Cassian and Marva uh, and Cassian's like lost homeland, then also Cyril and his mother and honestly like all of this, right? Like Mon Mothma now we have a, a daughter and that situation is very tense, whatever that is. Um, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. What is the personal investment? I need to know more. I think that's a really good point, though, about we have so many examples now of parents and children in this show. Like, a lot, actually. Also, like, that's Star Wars, right? Yeah. The parental-child relationship. Yeah. But having – because when you first had suggested that Vel – because when we found out that Mon Mothma had a a child, a daughter, earlier last week, we had thought that maybe it was Vel who was her daughter. And so seeing that it was a completely new character, which again, we're we're ramping up the number of characters in this I'm uh, I'm here for uh, for the daughter being a new character. By the way, I just want to say, oh, that. yeah, as yeah, much was as I was just, like, okay, it was just speculation that be. it was Vel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it. And when you had said, well, maybe now it's you know maybe there's possibility it's Luthen. At first, I was like, I don't know if I want that to be the reason uh, or the connection between the two of them. But I think you pointing out all of these complicated relationships with parents and children I think that would be a great way to it it would match the rest of the pattern and another point of comparison and even if they even if Vel came to see Luthen as a father figure even if she's not his biological daughter very much like Cassian and Marva you know so I think there's a lot of potential there actually and in thinking about the themes of this episode or rather what Cassian really experiences on Eldani it's learning a lot of everyone else's why but we don't know Luthen's why right now we I think have a pretty good idea of Mon Mothma's just because we 
have exposure to her character previously. I think there's still a lot to find out about Mon Mothma and her involvement in the rebellion. But I think we have a pretty good idea of her and kind of her moral compass. But Luthen, I would say, is probably the next biggest question mark we have for his involvement and why he wants to lead the rebellion and have so much risk on him. And he even talks to Clara about about having, what did he call it, the walkaway bag, I think is what he called it. Uh, yeah. And um, was that the name of the ship? I, we didn't write it down that he referenced. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it started with an F. But anyway, multiple walkaway bags in different places. So I thought, yeah, I, I, I could kind of be more for uh, Luthen and Val being related at some level. Also, we got to point out that there were holocrons in uh, Luthen's back room. Really big ones. And the really stones big. from the Temple of Doom. <laughs> Yes. I was like, oh, my God, the stones. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a lot of fun things. Man, to be on that set would have been I know. But so I'm glad we touched base with him here at the end and uh, that he's going to kind of be in the dark until we see how this whole thing shakes out with the Eye of Aldani and if they're successful. So it's, uh, it's again, really excited for next week. So now that we've talked about Luthen, we, of course, have to talk about Mon Mothma and Perrin and Leda, Leda, her daughter, which, uh, like father, like daughter, for better or worse, (laughs) it seems, uh, we see Mon Mothma and Perrin eating breakfast at their fabulous table with their fabulous uh, teapots and glassware. That apartment, it's just unreal. Yeah, could really thrive could really thrive (laughs) Uh (laughs) but i i I have to say though i think the glassware and uh all of that the tablescaping um we were all really obsessed with the glasses from solo remember but i think uh i think mon mothma's apartment is first place for me as far as tableware in the star wars galaxy uh as of right now it's pretty harsh competition but i think mon mothma's winning it (laughs) Definitely. <laughs> but we have this conversation between Perrin and Mon Mothma, and they're talking about uh, their daughter and basically if she's ready for, for school yet, it kind of sounds like. And Mon Mothma is supposed to take her to school. And Lita comes downstairs and is very surly with her mother and basically acts exactly like her father, accuses Mon Mothma of being selfish, making everything about her, and doesn't really want anything to do with Von Mothma, it seems, at this juncture, and uh, tells her mom to go and not take her to school or to whatever function they were going to. I don't know if it was school. I don't think it was school. I think it was something that Mon Mothma was then able to like show off that she has like such a good relationship with her daughter it, at some occasion. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. I guess I assume that they're all eating breakfast and she has to take her daughter somewhere. To me, it makes sense for it to be school. But uh, yeah, it could be anything. And I, I don't know. I assume that Mon Mothma would speaking at like an assembly at the school <laughs> or yeah, something. Maybe. Either way, wherever they were going, they didn't go together and it feels like Mon Mothma didn't go at all. And it's kind of surprising, not surprising. It's just a change of pace to see the daughter acting so much like her father and just openly uh, mean to Mon Mothma and 
doesn't want anything to do with her. Well, she was a teenager. Okay? I mean, she's yeah, a she's a teenager, right? I, I think there's something very realistic in her portrayal of, yeah. I know you're, you know, you're making it all about you. I don't want anything to do with you. Don't come to my school function, whatever it is, right? There's something very realistic about that. It sort of reminds me of the relationship that I sort of imagined how things were with Ben Solo and Leia when he was growing up on Chandrilla, which is interesting because Mon Mothma is from Chandrilla. Yeah. I think that what the show showed me was that it sort of contested Mon Mothma's like glowing leadership that you assume that she has. And yes, it is a very realistic portrayal of like a teenage daughter at home with like a stressed out family. It's also interesting coming off of the back of, say, Obi-Wan Kenobi, where we see Leia fully idolizing her father, Bale. And uh, we know that that continues. And yes, Leia has a rebellious spirit, and that includes rebelling against her parents. But this feels a little different. And this feels like the daughter has a lot of trauma with her mom, maybe both her parents, probably both of her parents. I don't know. Like it felt so real. <laughs> it felt so real. And also you get a sense that Mon Mothma is controlling in the household. And that's not necessarily, like I, I say, I kind of say that neutrally because I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but, or she wishes she had more control than she does. It feels like everything is kind of falling apart underneath her fingertips. Like we saw that in the last episode uh, where she's constantly being surveilled and she feels like she's like, it seemed like, I think I said in the last episode that she was having a very bad day. Like that bit bad day is continuing because it doesn't really feel like she has a lot of people on her side Mm -hmm. and her rebellion feels quite alone if she doesn't even get that support at home. But I think it's more complicated than that because you have to wonder if some of this is a little justified. Like is Mon Mothma not spending enough time with the fam- with her daughter? Is Mon Mothma expecting the daughter to follow in her footsteps rather than be her own person? Like we don't know anything. I'm just sort of throwing out storyline ideas. Tony Gilroy did say that this relationship was one of the hardest ones that he wrote in this story. Can't wait for more. Also, love to hate Perrin. We, you and I just love to hate Perrin. <laughs> that car ride just seems so awkward. And the fact that he was like, take the expressway, meaning like I cannot spend any more time one-on-one with my wife. Oh, my gosh. I, I was thinking, where is the sign for the expressway? How do we know? Right. I was like, how do you know? I don't know. I thought we were just like kind of like following a line here. I, I, don't, always, there's not I always wonder line. about that. There's not a median. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's in their cars, in their yes. vehicles. And anyway, yes. yeah, you, you have to wonder if, um, I don't know, I kind of see this world where Mon Mothma is always at the Senate, yada, yada, yada. And Perrin clearly doesn't like Mon Mothma, but he's the one that's actually with Leda all the time or most of the time. And so his influence just kind of rubs off on her. I don't know. I, I it's I can see how it would be challenging. I can also see how it would be challenging for, you know, uh, an older man like uh, Tony Gilroy to write about the mother-daughter relationship <laughs> with a teenage girl. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, I think true. Very, very true. By the way, yes, <laughs> right. Uh, so far, so good. I think, um, but even you know, even in the the table seating, Mon Mothma is at the head of the table, which is very purposeful. It's Perrin and Lita sitting across from her, and she's at the head of the table. It's it's her household. The 
the apartment looks like Mon Mothma's household. I wouldn't say it looks like a family household. You know what I mean? And it seems like there is a lot of of sacrifices that Mon Mothma has had to make in her home life of not having the relationship with her daughter that she would want. I that I imagine she would want. And part of that is probably because her daughter is a teenage girl, but then also because of a lot of other things going on, including maybe Mon Mothma not being at home as much as she would like to, uh, parent and her not having a good relationship, parents spending more time with the daughter, perhaps a lot of different things. Of course, that's the brilliance of the show, right? Yeah. Is that these moments feel so grounded in our real world and I certainly feel like I can relate to this scene in a, in a weird way. And it adds another layer when you understand like <laughs> everything that Mon Mothma is dealing with in this fantasy world, right? That again, feels so grounded in the wor- real world as well. You can have a familial drama with the backdrop backdrop of empire politics yeah. <laughs> that is just so absolutely brilliant. It's so good. What's so great about Andor is there's nothing, there's never one reason that you for why a character is acting a certain way you know there's a lot of things that you can infer into a character's dialogue and into their choices and it's not just that Mon Mothma is you know potentially always at work or away from home for long stretches of time it's not just that it's that she has this certain relationship with her husband who then has a certain relationship with their daughter. It's also that their daughter is a teenager and teenagers are (laughs) always thinking about themselves. You know, it's all of these different things. And even with Cassian in this uh, episode, it's, it's not, it's not just the money. That's what he tells everyone. Right. But it's, that's not entirely it. He's got everything that Luthen has talked to him, kind of percolating in his mind, uh, things that he's undoubtedly thought about himself before, everything that's happened with his family, right? I don't know. There's just, it's great that nothing is straightforward for a character's motivations. And I think that's, you and I were talking before we started recording about how Andor is really good at building tension throughout the episodes. And I think that's all part of uh, the tension building for this show so far is that these characters have a lot of different motivations and a lot of different complications that are uh, conveyed really well, I think, to the audience. And so that means that in some ways you can infer what you think their next steps are going to be, but there's also a lot of what I would say like a wild card to what they could do next. Totally. I think Cyril or Cyril, Cyril, now I'm like confused about how to say his name because his mother said his name a different way than we do, which I think we had said Cyril and it's actually Cyril. Anyway, now I'm saying it too much. Um, I think that the scenes, it's it's worth discussing in a in a larger way. The scenes with Cyril and his mother were fascinating and framed really well because we see basically three different, oh, two different locations in this house three different scenes. Two of them were in the same spot in different times. Like time has passed. We start off in this booth that is, feels like honestly the house, the apartment that Cyril grew up in, I have to assume that his mother lives in is pretty sterile. And when we're in this, this booth, it feels confined. It feels tight. It feels constricting, especially when 
his mother is sort of yelling at him and not really yelling, but kind of talking at him the entire yeah. time, making him feel small, making him feel like a little boy. That's the sense I got, especially giving him cereal with blue milk. Loved this touch like so much, but it feels like what you give your child, right? Your mom giving you a bowl of cereal just feels very youthful. What I took from these scenes is, wow, Cyril's home life is a pretty toxic situation and he has a really complicated relationship with his mother. He wants to impress his mother and do right by her, but also escape her. And him like having to come home is like probably the worst thing that could happen to him. Uh, the fact that his mother says, I intuit that you have no future prospects. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that is... I mean, talk about complicated mother-child relationships. I mean, this is number one. Yeah. And you even see Cyril in his bedroom, his, his like childhood bedroom with his, oh my gosh, his Clone Wars hot toys. I can't. I cannot. <laughs> uh, but like he has, he basically has tears in his eyes over how toxic his home life is. He's sitting there like, I got, I got to get out of here. I don't know what, to, I don't know what to do. Last episode, we both were like, he's going to dig in his heels there's going to be some sort of crossover with Dedra. And I think what was interesting also about this episode is his mother was like, I'm going to call Uncle Harlow. He's going to fix it. I don't know if anything's going to came out of that. Kind of felt like it didn't. But again, with the relatability <laughs> of this show <laughs> is that it feels so real world that you'd tell, you'd tell your, your family members about a struggle. And their solution was, I'm going to tell another person about it and they're going to help us. And the family grapevine. Yes, exactly. And that it's going to fix everything. And what that actually is, is this embarrass like this admittance of embarrassing actions to another family member. And I'm sure it just like continues to spread that Cyril screwed up. Yeah. Which is just the opposite of what he wants. Yeah. <laughs> and his, his character is just so interesting because you, you feel for him even though he did a bad thing. It's just great. It's it's great. He's a great character. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh he's really he's he's really great. I I just I love having all these points of comparison because this is now our second childhood bedroom that we've seen. We saw Cassian's back on Ferrix with Marva and he had his uh weapon from Canari, as well as what was it? Was it a stuffed wampa? Yeah, no, 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 um, stuffed bantha. Bantha, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then now we have Cyril's, and I actually tweeted out earlier this week. I was like, "What toy are we going to see in Cyril's bedroom?" Because it's definitely coming. And I was a little worried when we got to the end of the episode that there wasn't anything personal <laughs> in Cyril's bedroom. <laughs> so I was really excited actually to see the uh, the the action figures <laughs> and of yeah. course of course that's what Cyril would have he wouldn't have like a stuffed bantha right it's something more uh military it's something and you gotta mm -hmm. imagine too if he grew up on Coruscant in the age of the Clone Wars perhaps he's got memories of that time and I'm sure living on Coruscant if that's where he grew up I'm sure there's a ton of propaganda about the Jedi and the Clone Wars and the clone troopers, you know what I mean? And it's kind of, it's crazy to think that there would be merchandise on, on Coruscant about the clone troopers, uh, which is a thought I hadn't really thought of before, even though we do know that Jin has a stormtrooper doll, right? 
there that was in her bedroom. Well, also, we don't know if those models are stormtroopers or clone troopers. I'm just we don't. Yeah, we're just yeah. we're assuming. Um, yeah. it's some something, right? But I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about, and not to say that we don't have those in our own world too. I mean, like GI Joe and the little army men. Uh, same thing, basically. Uh, it's just interesting to think about, and I like having the comparison between these places, and also the fact too that we have three family homes that we've you you were kind of talking about this too three family homes that we've now gotten to look into Cassian and Marva's home on Ferrix we have uh this home uh between Cyril and Edie and then uh, Mon Mothma's home too and Mon Mothma and her daughter and husband eating breakfast and then I guess Cyril eating breakfast of of Cocoa Puffs (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whatever it is I don't know I I think it's 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 homey and it really lends to the relatability of this show and I think it's done so spectacularly but yeah I think you said a lot of a lot of what I was thinking about Cyril and Ede's relationship and how it's just very condescending and Cyril has a couple of good one-liners quips back to his mother too about how of course he heard her conversation with Uncle Harlow insinuating how loud she was talking and and even when she mentions calling Uncle Harlow he's like is he even gonna remember you (laughs) Uh, yeah it's mean yeah it's, but <laughs> he said something else at the in the very beginning of the episode too uh that I remember thinking oh I could not talk to my mother like that <laughs> 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 but yeah it really does just kind of paint a picture of his mindset and uh them talking about how Uncle Harlow said that you know he never really felt that police work was for you Cyril and Cyril's like well how would he even know he doesn't know me uh I, see I think Uncle Harlow is gonna get Cyril a job and I think it's going to be with Dedra that's kind of where I see this going mm, because we could be we know that last week the Empire was talking when they were chastising Dedra was like we're filling up all these spots for you to just sit there and be quiet and maybe Cyril could be another person to sit there and be quiet but we he yeah, still got true. that picture of Cassian and now Cassian mm-hmm. doesn't have a beard so he actually looks more like that picture uh that Cyril has anyway so I think that's what will happen and I'm obsessed with the Cocoa Puffs I think we all are makes me really happy so yeah (laughs) uh so to I think I think kind of round out our discussion now with our other kind of two empire moments uh we go to Ferrix for a quick second uh my favorite empire guy now Blevins he's there continue to love him uh, it was nice to go back to Ferrix. I was kind of surprised to see it, actually. But I knew you'd be like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except now we see that they're freaking taking over. We're going to make a headquarters there. We knew that's what was going to happen. I know, but no, we, we, we did see it. And now it's an action. And they're cleaning up and they're taking over. And the stormtrooper, the marching, the outfits are so in absolute contrast to the earthy tones of Ferrix. It's absolutely crazy. That short scene really told a a lot I think yeah it's kind of surprising honestly that they did include this scene and the fact that it wasn't just you know when we eventually go back to Ferrix that everything is in order like it's a it's it's a very much a random scene I would say because it's short Blevins doesn't really do anything else in the episode we see him pass Dedra in the hallway 
but that's really it. They don't have a conversation. So it, it is kind of interesting that they would include this. Uh, it definitely stands out, I think, in the episode, especially now that we're two episodes into this arc and we have uh, a very quick pace throughout these episodes of kind of going back and forth between Aldani and, and Coruscant mainly, right? But yeah, it was interesting to see Ferrix and I'm glad we did. And I'm glad we saw Blevins because, again, I really like him. <laughs> Um, but then we, uh, have a, a short couple of scenes with Dedra talking about with her assistant, someone who works under her or with her, uh, trying to still find a way to investigate what she suspects is rebellion activity. And I was getting intern vibes, by the way. Intern. Yeah. I don't know. He looks so familiar. I need to look up the actor. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> Me too. But they're still looking for a hook to investigate uh, what was going on on Ferrix with the box a little bit more. And the the intern, I guess, is kind of encouraging Dedra that she's picking up on all the right things. Like, it's too random to actually be random. And uh, Dedra says what I thought was a great line of, if I was doing a rebellion, this is how I would do it and never climb the same fence twice. But I think the thing I came out of that scene thinking about was if all of these isolated event events are actually the same rebellion or if it is all of these individual groups uh, rising up kind of of their own accord and then will something big will happen, perhaps what happens mm. on Aldani that will, you know, ignite the spark and yeah. bring them all together? Or are they all operating under the rebellion right now? Well, there was a lot of names that were familiar that were thrown out during this mm -hmm. research session, including Kessel. Yeah. And for me, with the timelines, it's pretty clear. I think they were referring to what we saw in Solo, which is when L3 basically freed all of the uh, the droids, created a rebellion there, and then oh, all I of the Wookiees were freed. Yeah, all of that. So that happened. And yes, that was completely separate from the rebellion as yeah. we know it. However, it was a clear response to the oppression of the Pikes and therefore the oppression of the Empire, considering when they left, they were followed by the Empire, yeah. right? So I think that you're... I think you're perfectly on point to point out that like it doesn't all have to be the rebellion as an organization, but it really is a response to the empire. And I think that what's interesting is that I think I spoke to this last episode, but maybe it's worth repeating that I think they're painting a really compelling picture of Dedra within this workplace situation in the empire. Her saying, I don't know what I'm doing, any of it. It's just they're creating a lot of like tension within the workplace. And I think that it's interesting because what's happening is it's, we're getting a little bit of an analog to real world workplace situations and how women are mistreated within this like male dominated like corporation, these, this huge big business. And I think in the last episode, I talked about like the girl bossification of it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what's curious about this character is that you can root for her because she is an underdog within the system, but we know that she's within an oppressive system. So we we can root for her because we actually want her to get out of that. But we also like, I in a, in a weird way, like I want her to succeed. She's smart. Like she's the, one of the only people that sees the splinters of the of the rebellion all across the galaxy, but ultimately she's on the wrong side. 
but she is within uh, an oppressive system. And it's worth talking about because I think that Tony Gilroy is actually the type of person, just given the fact that this series is like really definitely navigating a lot of political issues and social issues that I think that this show will make our opinion on Dedra even more complicated than it is right now. But it's it's curious how you you can't help but root for her in this situation, right? Like at least that's that was my perspective. I don't know if your perspective was that. You yeah, were yeah. I mean, I feel like you kind of see her being mistreated by the the man and you're like, no, no, she's right. <laughs> she's right. She's on to something. And she doesn't deserve to get heat for being right about something especially when she's doing everything by the book, but it feels like everyone around her isn't doing things by the book and that's how they're getting ahead. So now she has to figure out a way around that Um, again, but she's within the empire (laughs) and it's a, it's a system that's bigger than herself. And I wonder if she's going to have that realization or not. How is, uh, is Cyril once they sort of go on the path together, I guess, if that happens, I think it's going to happen. Um, what how does that complicate this view that we have of her character i'm endlessly fascinated by how they're threading the needle with this story it's great yeah well we all love an underdog story and she's yeah definitely the underdog i think you can't help but like the underdog uh right it's just complicated because you don't want to like the success (laughs) of her trying to uncover a secret rebellion yeah against a fascist organization like she's complicit in in fascism but at the same time it's it's just kind of like okay this is why the the show is really good because it's pretty complicated right you can be like big picture (laughs) well no I think you're supposed to I know I I know I agree I agree but it's also a small person story like it's it's the individual exactly and all, all of this like thinking about the um one I really hadn't thought about if the reference to Kessel was referencing Han himself, which is super cool if if true. Uh, and I that can't imagine not, that it's anything else, right? And that it is uh, not all these people working under the the organization of the rebellion in any official capacity. And honestly, it reminds me of one of the the best lines of the Rise of Skywalker at the end of uh, after everyone arrives to uh, Exegol. And what is it? The uh, First Order officers are like, it's, you know, is it more people from the resistance? And they're like, no, it's it's just people. It's just people. It's just it people. is so good. It, yeah. That's a really great line. It's, it's a really great, probably one of the best, yeah, one of the best lines from that movie. And I think is uh, applicable here too. It's not the rebellion. It's just just people all over the galaxy who individually within their own worlds feel that they have to act, that something has to change and that that eventually could become, will become something like the rebellion. Yeah. I really like that thought that it isn't the rebellion just yet. And I don't think it's supposed to be it. And even thinking about the show Rebels, that was barely the rebellion. And that was leading us right up to a new hope. So it, it makes sense that it's not it's not all of these organized rebellions quite yet. That that like Luthen is kind of controlling or leading at this point. It's um, much smaller than that. But I think perhaps this thing that happens on Aldani could be, again, the 
ignite the spark, light the flame kind of thing, you know? One thing that I think will be really cool with this show is to see, you know, thinking about character development, when we're looking at characters like Dedra and Cyril, who we are rooting for on some level, I think we're also rooting for them to see the true atrocities and leave the empire, right? Because we get to know them. Uh, Like with Cyril, we even talked about a possible redemption for him on some level. We want them to become good people uh, to join the rebellion, to join the cause. And, And even on Aldani, you know, Lieutenant Gorn, he saw the he saw how horrible the empire really was and changed his mind and we've seen that with examples of other people in different examples of star wars but i think that this show i don't i don't think all of these characters or any of them that are aligned with the empire could change their mind i think there will be a number of them that we grow really fond of that will not change even like I think someone like Dedra even if the Empire takes credit for her discovery whatever it is about the rebellion and she's so wronged by them she's never going to change loyalties even though that's something we would want for her character as we root for her as the underdog in her situation you know definitely and I think that's fine too like I think that her I I I wouldn't be surprised if her end was like her, like the end of the series finishes with her just fully being swallowed up by the like corporate machine of the empire that mm-hmm. she is within. Even though she has climbed that corporate ladder, it still is within a system Yeah, that is going to take a while to break. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the reality too, that not everyone is going to, I guess, see the light, change their mind and, and make a new choice right, that she'll continue to believe in the goals of the empire, perhaps. All right. Well, was there anything else we wanted to talk about with this episode? I think if I could, I know that this episode is called The Axe Forgets, um, which I think was a beautiful quote, The Axe Forgets, but the tree remembers. Now it's our turn to do the chopping. I think that was really great. But I do think the theme of the episode is that everyone has their own rebellion. And even in the conversation about Dedra and her being sort of lost within a system that is only meant for oppression, her acting out right now is her own act of rebellion. Mm-hmm. I think the teenage daughter of Mon Mothma is also enacting her own rebellion against her mother. And I think that Mon Mothma obviously is enacting her own rebellion. I think literally every single character has that quote applies to them. Everyone has their own rebellion. Yeah, no, I think that is a really good point that she's also acting in a rebellious manner against slash for the Empire. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode all about episode five of Andor the Axe Forgets. We are so looking forward to next week to hopefully seeing the eye of Aldani, hopefully all of our rebels making it off of Aldani in one piece. Uh, I'm nervous edge of my seat a lot of tension but Me too. Me um, too. very nervous I, I don't I don't have a good feeling I don't know don't I don't even want you because I, I know who you think will not make it and um no no <laughs> <laughs> 
But I'm so excited for next week uh, and wrapping up this arc and then seeing where we'll go next, too. So it truly feels like sky's the limit with Andor. And this has been such a fun uh, show so far and really, really a great show to chew on throughout the day, honestly, and see people's discussions and thoughts on it. So if you want to talk to us about Andor online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Flusher. Charlotte is at Clarity. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, email, all good places to find us and tell us your thoughts. And if you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would really love it if you took a second to go and do that. It helps other people find our show and join in on the conversation. And if you're interested in other ways to support our show and get involved in our Discord community, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. Rachel, Stephanie, Kelly, Chris, Colton, Jeff, Kate, Anders, Chuck, Britt, Maggie, King, Logan, Molly, and John. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.